Welcome to the Classic Kicks Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Santora, and today I'm joined via Skype by Simon Wood, better known as Woody, the founder and editor-in-chief of Sneaker Freaker magazine. Thanks for being here today, Woody. All right, man. Good to be here. Let's start by giving our listeners a little bit of a background of who you are and what Sneaker Freaker magazine is. Well, I guess we need to go back to the start. It was um, 2002, working in a bunch of different industries, you know, advertising, film industry. And I just kind of gone from thing to thing, project to project, and never really had much thought as to what I was doing long term. And um, I thought I would just start a, a magazine about sneakers, really, just so that I could try and get lots of free shoes. I mean, I thought that Nike would send a truck around and just be like unloading crates of stuff for me, you know. I mean, that was my dream. And I, I hadn't really thought about it any any further than just doing the first issue, which I made in about a week and a half. And uh, I put it out and 14 years later, I'm still here writing about shoes. It's been a crazy bunch of serendipitous things happening all around the world. And as we know, so much has happened in the last five years, let alone the last 14, that um, man, you have to write a book about. It's been a, it's been a crazy journey, that's for sure. Tell us a little more about where this journey has led you over the years. Well, I think, I think the thing that, you know, when you go from being a civilian, you know, a, someone who just loves sneakers to sort of being part of the industry, that transition, transition is really kind of interesting as well. I think that, you know, you sort of end up in the middle ground between being part, you know, seeing it from the, through the eyes of a kid who just loves sneakers, running your own business, but then also seeing a great insight into how the brands work. You know, I mean, I never thought that I would go to the Nike campus and meet some amazing designers like Tinker and, and those guys. Um, you know, beyond that, some of the amazing parties I've been to, like the, the Air Force One party in New York was, was probably the pinnacle in terms of the amount of money spent and the most insane stuff that happened. Uh, I don't know, just for someone who just loves shoes to be designing shoes, and I say designing, I mean like creating Sneaker Freak collabs, that, you know, check when you check that off on your CV, that's an amazing um, experience as well. So, um, man, there's so much crazy people I've met. Um, I was supposed to go to Jamaica last month with Usain Bolt with a Puma thing. Um, I didn't end up going, but, um, you know, some great opportunities. One of my best trips was going to South Africa with Adidas to um, hang out with the guys there in Johannesburg and Cape Town. Oh, what a crazy place that is. I loved it. That was probably the most fascinating and interesting place I've ever been. So, Man, there's so many, there's so many stories. I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, it's it's a it's 14 years of sort of history of like a really new. It's like a new aspect to this athletic industry. You know, like if you look at it by decade, you know, this last 10 or 15 years will be determined by this the rise of sneakerhead culture. And I, I kind of hate using that term, but um, it has turned into like a huge commercial mainstream kind of hobby, I guess. And when I started, it was a bunch of nerds in a few different countries who sort of knew each other but really didn't have any mechanism. There was no Facebook. There were a few forums like Crooked Tongues. And it was sort of like an underground secret society. And today, you know, it's far from that. What did the magazine look like when you first started it? If you look at the way that first issue is designed, I mean, it's pretty raw. Um, it didn't have a huge amount of thought put into it. It was just basically just whatever I could kind of grab really quickly. Um, and really, it was meant to be in the true tradition of a fanzine. You know, I never really set it up to look like a commercial-looking magazine. It didn't, I didn't even have any ads in that first issue. We gave away 3,000 copies. Um, 
And funnily enough, today, you know, today that copy sells on eBay for a few hundred bucks. It's the one that no one has. Um, and I don't even have more than about three copies left. So the first one, it was pretty, yeah, pretty raw, pretty quick. Um, I've mixed feelings when I go back and look at it now. Like I'm sort of, I wish it could have been a lot better and a lot more interesting. I wish I knew then what I sort of know now, or at least some of it. Um, but I guess it's like when you're a musician and you make your first recording with a reel-to-reel recorder and then you go back and listen to it after you've had, you know, a proper digital studio to sort of work with, you know, it's always going to seem like you've moved on. And I've certainly learned how to make a magazine since then. What were you looking to contribute to sneaker culture with the magazine? I guess I just wanted to contribute my own little version of it. I mean, I'd lived in London for quite a few years in the 90s, um, had, was sort of mostly inspired by those experiences. Also going to Japan, you know, when things like the 95 came out, that was a huge moment. That's when, you know, a lot of magazines like The Face were writing about kids in Japan wearing shoes that were four sizes too big for them because they were so in love with the shoe and that shoes were changing way above what you could get them from in Foot Locker. Um, I remember when the Rift came out, it was when I was working in London one summer, that was like a huge shoe. So there's all these little seminal moments. I don't come to it from a basketball background or a skateboarding background. I just come to it from someone who likes shoes. I like going into the, the stores and seeing what was new that week and just kind of geeking out. Um, as we all know, that's probably, those days are sort of gone now, but one of the greatest things about that time was you got to travel and buy shoes in Japan that no one, no one had ever seen before. Um, or even going to New York. I remember buying Air Force One somewhere down around Canal Street and just being blown away because there were a hundred different colors on the shelf. So yeah, there's so many memories to sort of rake over really when you get into it. What was your connection to sneakers growing up in Australia? Yeah, my, my connection to sneakers really was through sport. Um, and I used to go, I grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne here in um, Southern Australia. And I, you know, I used to go down the sports store and just kind of look through the window and stare at all the shoes on the shelf. And I think the, you know, I was obsessed with the thought of what the best tennis players were wearing on their feet. Um, I mean, basketball didn't exist really for me at all. So, you know, you can take all that Jordan and all that sort of stuff out of the equation. Um, and really, shoes were really expensive. They were unattainable. Like the thought of having four or five pairs was insane. Um, whereas today it's four or 500 pairs, you know, or whatever. And, I, and I'm always constantly amazed at the amount of money kids seem to have. Like it just blows my mind sometimes. Um, but I guess my entry, you know, like you just kind of slowly creep into it. I didn't have any other brotherhood network that I joined and all of a sudden I got this knowledge dropped on me. You picked up tiny little bits of information from here and there. Information was gold. Like unless you worked in a sports store or you owned the catalogs or you know, you were, you actively sought out that information. So, and there were key people that had that knowledge inside their heads and they were sort of like the oracles of stuff, you know, like they knew the proper color codes and all that sort of shit, you know, like when you really get into nerd stuff. Um, whereas now it's all so accessible and, and everybody seems to know everything about every shoe. Um, you know, back then it was kind of exciting. It was, and it was, you know, two, let's say we go back to even say 2000, you're only five years on from the 95 coming out. You know, whereas now that gap is 20 years plus. So there's this sort of huge gap. And I think the biggest change around 2000 was that retro obsession was only just starting to sort of take hold. I mean, 2000, you still had things like Prestos coming out for the first time. Um, people wanted newness. They wanted crazy stuff. They wanted, they wanted to be shocked when they went in the store to some extent. And what was great about that era is that everyone's, the brand started to kind of listen to what everybody was saying. And started to bring shoes back, you know, shoes that we thought we'd never see again. 
What was also great about that era is guys our age were now in our 20s and had some money to buy these sneakers. Yeah, that that money thing is the key. Like if you read the first, I don't know, half dozen interviews in the magazine from collectors, everybody mentioned their mother. It was really strange. I did it as well. We all talked about how when we were 14 or 15, our mums wouldn't buy us the shoes that we wanted. You know, they bought us something cheaper or more practical. Um, so that was a really weird, I don't know what, what all that means, but... Um, that that key to having money, like when you hit 22 or you're out of college or whatever, whenever it is that point when you finally get a job and you can go nuts and spend it on your money on whatever the hell you wanted, is it like a really important moment. But I, I don't think I actually answered your question before. I think in terms of, uh, you know, you started a shop, um, I started a magazine. You also have people like Hikmet at Soulbox in Germany, Eric and Peter at Sneakers and Stuff. You had Stash in New York, uh, the guys at Mita. Atmos, like everyone in that two or three year period all brought something, whatever it was, to the sort of sneaker industry, I guess. And you had all those people traveling from Japan to New York. From New York, they went to Japan and they both brought shoes back with them. And then you had like little parallel importing scenes going on in different areas. Uh, And then those guys opened legitimate stores. Um, The business grew, you know, like it's sort of, that was when those seeds were planted for sort of what things have become now. And I think, you know, in the last few years, it's still the core is those guys who are my age, like early 40s now, who got into the scene and contributed to it. Um, there were no sneaker conventions. There was no Facebook. There was All those things didn't exist yet. And I, I don't know, I'm reluctant to use that word sort of sneaker culture, but I guess that's the bubble around all the other shit that goes on around shoes, you know. Look at the convention scene now. There's like 20 of them or something all over the world. Um, you know, it's a... The key to this whole thing is that it's an amazingly competitive, ruthless industry for ideas and creativity and brands will spend money like crazy to catch people's attention and, and we've all found our own way to contribute to it. It's, it's been fun to watch. Like I'm often amazed at some of the shit that's happened. Just got to laugh. It's crazy to think about like around the early 2000s when Jen and I were starting Classic Kicks. I remember, you know, we would literally rip out the pages of the Japanese magazines and take them to WSA, you know, the shoe show in Las Vegas. And Nike, you know, Nike was onto it at the time, but most of these other companies had no idea whatsoever that there were people out there that wanted, you know, their old styles to come back out again. Yeah, it seems pretty fundamental to the industry now. I think, you know, maybe what's happening now with... um, this battle between Adidas and Nike is that, you know, we're sort of heading, transitioning out of that retro sort of period. I think people are looking for a totally new thing, but I'm sure you'll probably get to that in your questions. Um, So yeah, it's been 15 years of raking over the same old stuff. It's been great, but man, I feel like every shoe I ever wanted to come back has come back. And, and sometimes when they do bring back like a really great shoe, it's just, it's either not the right time or it's too much for some people, you know, and the, I think the industry's trained kids to sort of only want to desire certain things, you know, and that's kind of come back to haunt them a little bit now. I mean, do you think do you think we're see we're going to start seeing a decline in some of the retro products and that everything everything is shifting to more performance and technology-based shoes right now? Uh, I I think so. I think retro running looks a little bit stale right now. I think I think we've gone through the cycle of pretty much every colorway you can possibly do using suede and mesh. So, you know, there's no doubt people are looking to different fabrics with textures and so on to just kind of keep it fresh. Um, uh, Look at Adidas. They're 
and people were really excited about stuff that um, didn't exist before. So um, they're on a roll now on the back of this sort of new aesthetic that they've sort of carved out. It's, you know, you could trace it all the way back through Y3 to shoes like the Casa or, or you can also include the Rushy, all those kind of simple lightweight shoes. And I think one of the keys to it is those shoes are really comfortable. Um, they're light. Um, from an industry point of view, often they're really simple and easy to make. So the industry likes that type of thing. Um, you've got knitted uppers, so there's no waste. Like it's a sort of a, it is an evolution in the thing. I think, I think if you look at like Nike Air as a technology, I don't think we'll ever see something come along as sort of dynamic as that, that kind of makes people freak out. Like it's a, you know, like shocks or those things. I think the days of those things are gone. Whereas with Adidas, they've come with just a basically what seems to be an improved foam compound in their shoes. They are really comfortable. Um, but it's not really like a dramatic change. And I think using technology in terms of shoes is a little bit problematic because I think technology these days is everything's about your phone, your apps, or the things you can do with it. Whereas in shoes, you're really just talking about pretty small um, innovations, really, that make it sort of, you know, transform the industry. So being able to knit the shoes, I think, is... Um, substantial but we'll see an evolution of that as well there's lots of gossip about what's happening between the brands as they slug it out for for that slice of the market as well um it's like you have to have something coming out every week i think if we went back to 2000 it was like you had something every couple of months just to keep people kind of stimulated man people people's threshold for boredom now is pretty small so the brands have to keep coming with with something new all the time so Adidas is obviously a big story in the sneaker world right now. What what are some of the other big stories happening at the moment? Man, it's pretty hard to not mention Kanye straight off the bat, I suppose. I underestimated his uh, ability to kind of get the job done. I thought Kanye plus Nike equaled home run, Kanye plus Adidas, especially where, where they were at when he started, when he first signed that deal. And it did take 12 or 18 months for that first shoe to sort of come out. I think that I'm not sure if they regret that first shoe, but it already looks it already looked dated by the time it hit the street for me. <clears throat> I think that um, I think they've done a pretty good job of um, keeping that you know the 350 going because it hasn't really changed that much. Um, you know, we've seen different colorways, but not not a whole lot else. We've seen the same color released more than once. Uh, you know, they really need to come with something new pretty quick. Um, but saying that, I think the demand seems limitless. I mean. I've had, you know, friends of friends call me up and tell me that their 13-year-old daughter wants a pair of these Yeezy shoes and can I get some? And when I tell them that kids are camping out for five days and if they don't want to get in the queue, um, they need to get them on eBay and they're like 1200 bucks. you know, you can sort of just hear them freak out. They just can't believe, you know, that this thing's happening. But that just shows you the influence Kanye has got at a really mainstream suburban level. I mean, he's not talking to hip-hop fans that are just in the five boroughs of New York. He's talking to kids in the suburbs of Melbourne, Australia, who probably like Kanye, but somehow being drawn into this thing. So, I mean, I don't know, is it, is it like the way humans, when we see a crash on the freeway, we all stop to look at it? I mean, there's something perverse, right? People are just sucked into this thing. I don't even know if kids know why they want the shoe. Is it so that they can show off to their friends? Is it so that... Um, they just can have the satisfaction of owning it or is it so that they can wear it? I mean, there's so many different reasons. I, I, but I, all I'll say is I totally underestimated his ability. I think he also, you know, remember when he did all those interviews with Sway and all that kind of stuff? Fuck, man, he compared himself to Nelson Mandela and all that kind of crazy talk. Anyone else, would that would sink them 
you know, he's he's a Teflon machine. It's like he has to be in the paper every two days. And then, you know, he's married one of the most famous women in the world. He's He has a huge audience. I don't know if you listened to the last episode, but my guest Matt Powell said that Rihanna is more of a sneaker influencer than Kanye West right now. What do you think about that? I Look, I think Matt Powell's wrong in terms of comparing Rihanna to, to Kanye in terms of their influence. I think that um, for starters, um, Kanye crosses both men's and women, the both men's and women's market, whereas the Rihanna stuff is just for girls. So, you know, that's just cutting out half the audience straight away. I think that there's a long way to go for Rihanna's stuff to evolve. Um, that's not diss on her. It's just where that, where Puma's at and where that project's at in general. But um, um, I think Matt might be being a little bit cheeky and uh, disingenuous by suggesting that Rihanna's more influential than Kanye because, to me, uh, there's no comparison. I mean, Kanye hits both, you know, men and women um, in terms of appeal. Rihanna's at the moment just in a very early stage and I haven't seen any cues for Rihanna's stuff for five days or two weeks or whatever the hell kids have been queuing. Whereas I think, you know, in probably 20 different countries, you've got kids queuing up for, what, 10, 10 to 15 days for the new Yeezy? I mean, I think there was one in, was it in San Diego where kids were queuing up before they even knew when the shoe was coming out? It's like someone went down there with a camp chair and just stood out front of the shop and then everyone thought, oh, he must know something about when the shoe's coming out. So they all went and got in the queue as well. And then after three weeks, all of a sudden they realised that, there was nothing actually coming out. So, I mean, no one wants to miss out, I suppose. I don't know. Um, but, you know, there's no denying when kids want to camp out, that is a really simple way of looking at the influence that someone has. And every single one of Kanye's shoes has caused unprecedented hype and campouts. But it's simple. What are some of the other huge stories right now in the sneaker world? Yeah, look, aside from Kanye, the, the biggest is is the moves that Adidas has made in the last, like, 12 months. I think um, I think they've cornered the market in, in looking fresh and energetic and this, you know, amazing kind of, I don't know, mixture of sort of things that they've come up with. It's quite simple in one way, but it is definitely a, a new thing. Um, and we're seeing that translated into a lot of comments from from young kids who previously probably had, I would say, I'll call them like Nike goggles. Like they viewed everything through the prism of Nike innovation. Whereas now I think we've got like a more even battleground where this younger generation, I'm talking like 15 to 20, um, maybe even younger, um, feel that Addy is actually coming with the fresh stuff and that Nike hasn't always got a mortgage on the cool shit. And that's, I got to say, after 14 or 15 years of looking at all this stuff, that's the first time I've ever really seen that, that's a pretty seismic change. It seems like Instagram has become quite the platform for sneaker collectors and sellers. Yeah, look, you're right. The whole Instagram thing is a phenomenon. There are, there are people buying and selling crazy amounts of shoes just through an Instagram account. Um, there are people spending hundreds of thousands of dollars just to become Instagram superstars. It's a whole, that's a whole other kind of phenomenon. I, I, you know, I, I also come from a point of there's a little bit of always one-upmanship in that early period, you know, let's say late 90s, um, if you had something no one else had, if you'd just come back from Japan or if you'd been to New York, man, you couldn't wait to go out to a club or something and wear a pair of shoes that you knew no one had. But at that time, 90% of the people wouldn't even know what the hell they were anyway. So it was only when you see someone checking out your shoes and you would kind of give them the nod or whatever that you, you know, you know someone kind of noticed. Now it's, 
now everybody seems to know what everything is and you don't need to go anywhere to get it. It's just have you got the amount of money to buy it from eBay or wherever, from the secondary source, or are you prepared to stand, out, stand outside a store for six days to get it? Um, but that, one, that sense of one-upmanship was, is still really important. I just think it's been magnified now by this idea of money can just get you cool, you know, and that's the part that I think irks a lot of early, you know, a lot of the older guys who remember what, what things used to be like. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to be one of those crusty old guys that sort of just disses the kids. I mean, there's always stuff written about the bots, the resellers and all that sort of stuff. I think, I don't know if it's controversial, but I think the reseller part to this whole industry is like crucial. And, you know, I've, we've written a lot of stuff. It's not that I want to go out and endorse it and be like some sort of positive rep for reselling, but people have to just realize that it's all part of this scene and it fulfills a relatively healthy kind of circle in the business. Um, it's not ideal when kids miss out on shoes. There's always hard luck stories. It, I hate it when kids feel like they're disillusioned so much that they can never get a pair of shoes they want. But you have to realize that that's just the way things are. So, so tell me, what are, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the sneaker industry or the most meaningful changes you've seen from the time you started the magazine up till today? Wow. I guess in terms of change, you know, change over the last 10 years, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of avoid, you know, the use of technology to connect um, brands, stores, um, and the, and the community, I think, um, you know, as you discussed, like Nike talk was one of the few places where people are actually discussing shoes. I mean, uh, how old's Facebook? It's like seven years old or something, right? I mean, that changed things alone because that really killed all the forums, um, that existed like the crooked tongue ones and even the sneaker freaker forum, um, to some extent, um, Instagram became its own little community. Facebook has now hundreds and hundreds of sneak groups where kids are all buying and selling shoes and trading. Um, I know of someone here in Melbourne who's turning over like six figures every month selling shoes to kids in China. I, I think that's probably the biggest change is, is just the fragmentation of everything. Like it does give everyone the sense in the industry of being slightly out of control, you know, that they can't really, you know, enforce sort of things the way they did. Um, and beyond that, I think the biggest change is probably, you know, the how mainstream this whole thing's become. You know, it's it still retained its cool factor, I think, um, and that's why kids as young as 12 and 13 are getting involved. We've seen, you know, at our own sneaker swap meets, kids who are 13 buying and selling shoes. Um, you know, that's something I never thought I'd see. Um, and I'm sometimes amazed at how young they are and how entrepreneurial young kids are. It's pretty amazing, actually. So with this insane amount of awesome, great products coming out every week, how do you decide as editor-in-chief what makes it into Sneaker Freaker magazine? Well, we have an editorial meeting where we just come up with a bunch of ideas and then we sort of work through it. I think that I think we're really conscious of not repeating ourselves um, after being around for this long. So we're, we're probably um, we love finding super obscure, weird stuff that maybe only one person cares about. Like that's that's I love that. Well, you know, that's my specialty, writing about the super obscure stuff that most people don't care about. Yeah, like, I mean, you've written a couple of stories for Sneaker Freaker with uh, Bill Sumner and Bob Peterson who took those original amazing photos of Nike athletes, you know, back in the 80s. And I love the sort of um, the industry then, there was a lot of sort of cowboy stuff that went on, like really seat of the pants stuff, 
that today you just could never do. And I love hearing those stories. Like to me, I find that stuff fascinating. So some of um, um, some of Bill Sumner's stories were crazy. You know, he had a fully grown tiger sitting next to uh, who was the athlete right next to his um, thing. They were throwing him stakes to stop him trying to chew the guy's arm off and stuff. You know, like you you'd never do that stuff today with athletes. You know, so but it, like we um, we've really not played ever the hip hop fame game. We've never had. DJ Khaled on the cover or, you know, we've never run. Have we done Jordan on the cover? Yeah, we did. We used an old image of his. Um, to me, the shoe's always been the star. I mean, if you remember when Soul Collector started, they had girls in bikinis in there to try and manufacture some sort of interest, I suppose. Um, I didn't really disapprove of it from a sort of moral or puritanical point of view. I just, I just never thought that shoes needed some sort of sexualization to make them sort of interesting. Um, they probably wouldn't do it now. So, I mean, that was a long time ago and it, it, it is what it is from that, from that era. Um, but we've always just been about the shoes. And we've also, I think, tried to be pretty fair in terms of covering all the different brands, um, giving everyone as much shine as possible. I mean, of course, we always have a huge amount of Nike content because they are probably the most diehard collectors to find. Um, but, you know, saying that, we've also written extensively about the history of Pony. Um, we just did in the most recent issue, we did Pro Keds. So I think we just keep working our way through the brands and finding new ways. I mean, we only do three issues a year. So in 14 years, we're up to issue 36. So you could hardly call us prolific. But we do put a lot of work into each issue. And, um, and you know, I think that the content's getting better and better rather than thinner and thinner. Most magazines these days are sort of getting, you know, they're sort of a shadow of their former self. You wonder why people keep buying it. I think... Um, you know, we're really fortunate to have the support of the industry. So we, um, you know, the magazine's in a really healthy spot. Our distribution's good. Our corporate backing's really good. And it means we can invest the time and energy into making a magazine that I still think I'm really proud of. Well, I'm really proud of you and your magazine too, Woody. You've been putting out great work for over 10 years and it just keeps getting better and better. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, if you need, uh, you need any follow-up or there's some parts that don't make sense, just give me a call, Nick. This has been another episode of the Classic Kicks podcast. I want to thank our guest, Simon Woody Wood from Sneaker Freaker Magazine, and thank everybody for listening. We'll see you next time.